When you enter the Siberian town of Verkhoyansk, a monument greets you. It's been called the Pole of Cold. You can see the mountains in the background. A YouTuber named Sebastian posted this video tour a few years ago. So this is the monument of uh, the village, Verkhoyansk. It looks like a woolly mammoth head, two big tusks reaching up to the sky. In this Russian ice box of a town, temperatures have hit 90 below zero Fahrenheit. It's minus 38 degrees Celsius right now, but uh, yeah, cloudless, sunny, but still cold, of course. And here you can see the uh, memorial of the coldest place on earth. Uh, well, this place the New York Times called the coldest city in the world has now officially broken a record on the other end of the thermometer. Highest temperature ever recorded north of the Arctic Circle. It was over 100 degrees Fahrenheit in Verkhoyansk last June. The UN's World Meteorological Organization confirmed the record this week. Unfortunately, that's another good indicator of patterns that we're seeing across the Arctic. Climate scientist Twyla Moon is one of the authors of a new Arctic report card from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We're seeing rapid and really dramatic changes that are experienced as both big warm events, but also other surprising and extreme weather events. Disappearance of sea ice, a rapid melt from snow in spring earlier than expected and also more water in our Arctic rivers. But the future is not completely written here. Consider this. Climate change is not just a future threat. It is happening now. Coming up, we'll talk with the man who's led the global effort to fight it this year. From NPR, I'm Ari Shapiro. It's Thursday, December 16th. It's Consider This from NPR. The Arctic is warming up about twice as fast as the rest of the planet. But no matter where you go in the world, every country is already seeing the impact of climate change. As I was growing up, I do not uh, uh, remember our settlements being uh, flooded probably once, uh, once in 15 years of my life. Satyendra Prasad is Fiji's ambassador to the United Nations, and I met him at the UN Climate Summit in Scotland last month. In the last uh, five, six years, our homes have been my own home, and my mother's uh, uh, home has been flooded something like three times in a year. Prasad told me Fiji's government has already identified dozens of communities that will have to be moved to higher ground as rising seas threaten to swallow them up. Fifty communities have been identified for uh, relocation, of mm-hmm. which we have completed around six, and all the others are at different, uh, different stages. The summit in Glasgow brought together people from all over the world, and everyone had stories of how climate change is already affecting their lives, from Vanessa Nakate of Uganda. The disruptions in weather patterns are causing extreme weather events like flooding, like landslides, like extreme droughts. To Ruth Miller of Alaska. This past year, when I was forced to watch our thika, our salmon, dying in our streams of heat stroke, um, it was heartbreaking. Activists and scientists agree on the need for urgent action. But getting delegates from nearly 200 countries on the same page is much more difficult. So what's that like? 
Well, Alok Sharma recently found out. He is president of COP26, the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference, which wrapped up in Glasgow, Scotland last month. And this week, he gave me a behind-the-scenes glimpse of how that felt from the inside. I've talked about this being a game of multidimensional chess, where there are so many moving parts. Um, uh, I mean, perhaps a, a more appropriate description is, is this game Jenga. That's the tabletop game where you pull one piece at a time from a rickety tower of wooden blocks. So what we were doing at this COP is building, you know, effectively a tower of commitments. And in these multilateral processes, it just needs one country to pull out one piece and there is a potential for the whole thing to collapse. The tower wobbled, but didn't collapse. The Glasgow Climate Pact reaffirms the goal of the 2015 Paris Agreement, which was to keep global temperatures from increasing more than 1.5 degrees Celsius from pre-industrial levels. After Glasgow, some experts have said that 1.5 degree goal is alive, but on life support. I asked Sharma whether he agrees. I certainly agree that we have managed to keep 1.5 alive, and in fact... I've uh, said that the pulse uh, of this is weak, uh, and that's why to strengthen the pulse, we're going to have to work very hard to ensure that all of those commitments that countries have made are delivered upon. I do want to look forward, but before we do, just to take stock of how the Glasgow summit concluded, in those final hours, you spoke to the delegates and you recognized that this agreement does fall short of what many scientists and activists have said is necessary. Here's part of your remarks. I apologize for the way this process has unfolded, and I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the the deep disappointment. But I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. It was clear you were emotional in that moment. Can you tell us what your inner monologue was, what was going through your head? Yes, Ari, I think uh, firstly to say that uh, I do think what we got over the line collectively, actually, as as a global community, Uh, was historic. And my disappointment was actually not with what was achieved, because I think what was achieved is historic. And even on the issue of coal, where we had a wording uh, change from phase out to phase down of of, of coal domestically by by every country, uh, that is a historic... And this was introduced by India, just to clarify. India requested that change. It was was actually uh, both China and India, as you saw Mm -hmm. from the the interventions, uh, that wanted to see a a change in language um, when it came to fossil fuels and and, and the issue on coal. But um, this is a historic first. Um, Never before in any COP process has there been a commitment from almost 200 countries to phase down unabated coal domestically. Um, so my disappointment was was actually with the process. In those final few hours, and you heard this from the, the, the floor, uh, there was a view that uh, it had been opaque. And that's what I was apologizing for. An agreement can be both historic and inadequate, right? Like nature doesn't move the goalposts just because it recognizes good faith and historic commitments. Do you agree that this is inadequate, that it falls short of what the goalposts require. I think the way I would explain this is that, um, you know, every COP builds on the previous COPs. And what we got over the line here was uh, we have kept uh, 1.5 alive. We have ensured that 90% of the global economy is now covered by a net zero commitment. Again, that's historic, but it is commitments that then have to be delivered upon. They have to be delivered upon, as you say, and there's real question about whether these commitments will be met. Many of the climate activists who I spoke to from developing countries 
have been extremely focused on the failure of wealthy countries to pay for the damage that has been caused by highly developed countries' emissions. Uh, Vanessa Nakati of Uganda is one, and she said this at a demonstration in Glasgow. For many of us in vulnerable countries, adapting to climate change is no longer enough. You cannot adapt to starvation. You cannot adapt to extinction. You cannot adapt to lost cultural heritage. What do you say to them? Well, firstly, I'd say is that uh, it is the case that the $100 billion goal, which was committed to uh, back in 2009 to start off with, um, wasn't met uh, in 2020. Uh, I think we can say that with some uh, certainty. However, we did set out a delivery plan. We know that the $100 billion will be met by 2023 at the latest. In the case of Uganda and very many other countries on the front line of climate change, they are having to face a changing climate, and they're having to adapt to that. And one of the things that I know was welcomed uh, was the fact that developed nations agreed to double the amount of money by 2025 that goes to adaptation. So let's look ahead to the next climate summit in Egypt, just one year away. What needs to happen by then for us to believe that progress is being made in reducing emissions or addressing climate inequality? All of these things that remain such unresolved issues? So there are a whole range of commitments that countries made, uh, but one very tangible thing that was agreed upon, uh, which people will be able to point to at the end of 2022, is that all countries uh, signed up to coming back uh, and looking again at their 2030 emission reduction targets, those nationally determined contributions, uh, if necessary, uh, to ensure that they are aligned with the Paris temperature goals. This idea of countries committing to looking again at their goals feels like postponing roof repairs in hopes that the roof doesn't cave in by the time you actually get around to doing the repairs. The window is closing, right? The window is closing, but if you look at it the other way, uh, there is still time for us to act. And I think the fact that we have injected this new sense of urgency shows that people actually do want to fix the roof. And over this last year, when I was going around visiting countries, everyone said to me that they wanted COP26 to be a success. Well, I have to say that actually the countries did step up. They have delivered. They delivered on these commitments. We have... Well, well if, if I may, they have promised to deliver. And there's a key difference between saying they have delivered and they have promised to deliver, particularly when they've so often failed to meet past promises. They have. Uh, what I was saying to you is that they have delivered on commitments. And as I've said, and I'm happy to repeat, is that those commitments now lead, need to lead to, to actions. And one of the key elements of this is a transparency framework. So going forward... We are now, for the first time, going to be able to see whether countries are actually delivering on the commitments that they're making. Just to conclude, I have asked you about your professional role. Um, can you give us a sense of what it felt like personally to carry this weight on your shoulders? There were several moments in Glasgow where I spotted you speed walking through the hallways of the summit, surrounded by a clutch of people. Take us inside that bubble. What was your experience actually like? In those final hours of the COP, I genuinely felt the whole thing was in jeopardy. And, uh, you know, I spent months being asked whether I felt the weight of the world on my shoulders. I can tell you, in those final hours, I absolutely felt the world's weight on my shoulders. But we got this over the line. And the reason we got this over the line, Ari, is because we had spent two years building the trust, ensuring that when we came forward, people understand that was done with sincerity. And uh, at the end of the day, we were doing the very best that we could. And that's why 
despite the fact that people had reservations on the change of wording on coal, uh, this was a deal that everyone felt had to be saved, and we got it over the line. Alok Sharma, president of COP26, the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference. You're listening to Consider This from NPR. I'm Ari Shapiro. 